think we might go ahead and get started today. So I'll give you a second to find your way to where you want to go and maybe let people know outside that we'll begin. Why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we will begin our time. God, thank you for this morning where we can come together and we can study and gather around your word to be able to understand what you have revealed to us so graciously. And thank you that we can come in fellowship with one another and be encouraged, and we pray that that would happen. And thank you, God, that we have the privilege of drawing near to you. Thank you that you have made us worshipers, that the things that we once worshipped and that we would continue to worship and serve starting with ourselves and branching out into everything else that aligns with our desires, that you have changed our hearts to no longer seek to do that as our rule, but instead to worship you. Yet we know that we do fall short in many ways, and we pray that you would help us to be, uh, through this time, through this morning together, that you would help us to be made to worship you more faithfully, and that you would help us to love you with all our hearts. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as to how to do that from your word, pray that you would be glorified and honored by our time together. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, we are going to jump back in this morning to our study on government and the Christian life. And we're going to uh, review a little bit first and then uh, turn our focus to some matters of um, action on our part and what it is that we should be thinking and doing about uh, how we respond to government that doesn't exactly fit the way that we think it should be done, and in particular government that doesn't really align with what the Bible says should be done. Um, I want to just uh, review what we've covered so far so that we can catch up and make sure that we are uh, ready to move forward. We began this study by talking about God as the one who establishes government can you think of any passages that talk about God establishing government? I know it's too early to be asking you questions, but I'm asking you anyway. Where do we learn that God establishes government? Okay, what chapter in the book of Romans does he talk about establishing government? Chapter 13, right? There is no government except what God has established. Those that exist have been established by God. This does not mean that God approves of the action of any one particular government, but it does change some of the way that we think about uh, who is in power, what kind of government is over us, and the way that we respond to all of that. So God is sovereign in establishing governments, uh, including any specific government that exists at any given time. Um, we also see this played out when uh, Daniel has his uh, prophecies that he gives about the various governments that would be world empires in succession, uh, starting with Babylon and moving forward. Um, we then considered whether the government should use the uh, Mosaic law in particular. Should we be uh, a nation? Is it right for governments to kind of appropriate 
what the Old Testament says and some reasons why that's not something that can be done wholesale. Uh, even though it is kind of an established formal law code, we can't just take that and transport that and impose it upon any other nation or people or time or place beyond the Israel of the Bible. So we considered that idea. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the features of good governments. What makes a government good according to the Bible? And we found that there is little there about structure, uh, although perhaps ideally it should factor in human depravity and human sinfulness and try to account for that in some way. Um, but it does have a lot to say about government officials, what they should be like in their character and how they should actually act when they are governing, uh, especially containing the fear of God and walking in righteousness. Um, we also then looked at what the government should be doing. What should the government do? What must they do? Uh, what, are, what are the responsibilities of government? And then what may they do? What are they permitted to do that is optional? Um, we looked at what the law is uh, in considering uh, should the government follow a certain type of law of God uh, and just step back and said, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the law, when it talks about God's law and the various ways that the Bible does speak about the law of God. And then uh, in the most recent uh, couple of weeks that we studied, it was the uh, Christian's basic responsibilities toward the state. What are we obligated to do as Christians toward the government and how are we supposed to respond regardless of who they are. Uh, so those are all the things that we've covered so far. Now I want to talk about beyond the basic responsibilities, um, how should God's people relate to government? Uh, how should God's people be involved? How should God's people think about it and relate to those who are leading the government? And to what degree should we be acting and talking about this and trying to get involved and trying to influence things and trying to change things and trying to influence other people? How, how should we do this? Um, and this is especially the case when we think about the government as being run by people who don't fear God. Those who don't really meet the criteria that God lays out for what government officials should be and do. And when the government is not actually doing the kinds of things that God says government exists for in the first place. And it's doing many things that it doesn't exist for. So this is especially we want to consider this just in light of when we perceive the government being run by uh, leaders or in a way which does not reflect the fear of God, or even if we do, even if we think that the government is kind of running toward the fear of God on some level, toward honoring the Lord, uh, we, if we want it to be more that way, or if we want it to continue in that way, how should we think about this as Christians? So I want to look at several perspectives on this as we go through the next few weeks, and um, we'll talk about what believers in the Bible did. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, kind of survey what did people in the Bible do when they were in a situation like this. Um, we'll talk about some of the theological considerations and systems that would drive us to think a certain way about this and to act a certain way about this. Um, we'll talk about some of the potential benefits and drawbacks of pursuing government involvement and of uh, just talking about it and influencing it and speaking about it in general. Uh, we will talk... Uh, about how to think about voting, and then maybe some uh, personal considerations for our own souls on the um, 
some of the factors that we want to consider wisdom-wise for our own decisions about how involved to be and some of the interpersonal considerations for how our involvement affects our responsibilities and relationships that we have in the church and with one another and with our unbelieving neighbors. So those are just a few things that are on the horizon. This morning, what I want to do, as I said, is to just start with a survey of governmental involvement in the Bible. Now, this is a survey, a survey of governmental involvement, and so this is not going to hit every single uh, interaction and involvement. It's not going to hit every single person, but we can try our best to do that. So uh, I want to cover this in four main stages. We'll talk about it as Israel, or excuse me, uh, government interactions before Israel, then um, Israel as a nation, although we'll see it's kind of a unique case because it's not being run, but it, it kind of has its own standard. Uh, and then we'll talk about how uh, people interacted toward the Gentile nations. Uh, how did the Jews interact with Gentile governments who were hostile toward them or toward God or both? And then in the New Testament era, how did people in the New Testament interact with the government? So those are the four stages that I want to talk about. And just want to begin with what we'll call pre-Israel, a survey of pre-Israel governmental involvement. So I'm going to give you a second and just uh, ask you to think before the establishment of the nation of Israel or the growth of it really even within uh, Egypt, and when they came out in the promised land or came to Mount Sinai and then to the promised land, received the law and so on. Before that and before they were sort of commissioned and fully formed as a nation, uh, were there any interactions with believers, between believers and between a government or government officials who did not fear God? Or who they, uh, they needed to respond to in some way who were in sin, who were going against God's principles for what government should be and do? Can you think of anybody or any situation? Yes. Yes, good, good example. So Joseph and the Hebrew midwives. Yes, good, we'll come back to those too. Those are two good examples. Can you guys think of others? Moses, okay. Yeah, and who was he interacting with? Pharaoh, right? It was the, he, he was the guy, he was interacting with him. Yes, okay. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, he went into the land. I think so. That happened twice, right? That was, uh, and one of them, he was in the land of the, uh, the Philistines uh, with Abimelech, and the one before that was. Let's see this. So that was uh, Genesis twenty, and then I think chapter thirteen, he had done that as well if I'm not mistaken, so um, uh, maybe chapter 14, somewhere, um, somewhere previous to that, excuse me, chapter 12. Uh, actually, this was when he was in Egypt as well, that's right. So there was a, so he interacted with Pharaoh and um, Pharaoh tried to take his wife and uh, he said that she was his sister. Same thing happened later on with the Philistines. So yes, those are some, some examples of interacting with government leaders, okay? Anything else you can think of? Okay, so in their conduct in those situations, can you think about any way in which they related to them uh, as government officials? And some of the ways that we talked about, whether it's submission, whether it's challenging them, whether it's confronting them, uh, just obeying them, having to navigate with wisdom. How did they relate to those leaders? 
Yeah, and you know, what's interesting about that is that, so Pharaoh yeah, enslaved them, and part of the reason he did that is because they were worried about that very thing. You know, they might join our enemies and, and fight against us. So they said, we've got to really oppress them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So very much um, involuntary slavery. They were, they, were, uh, they were held captive. Yes, what else? What are some uh, distinguishing marks of Joseph's service when he was in the Egyptian government? He was the second position in the kingdom. And what was he doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was just doing the job, right? And, and Israel, or excuse me, and uh, God blessed Egypt through Joseph's involvement in that, in that government. So he was... Uh, he put him there on purpose. Uh, we, in fact, we know, obviously, that this was the plan. This was Joseph's interpretation of the situation at the end of his life. This was also very obviously what was going on throughout the entire account, that God wanted Joseph to go to jail so that he could meet this guy uh, who worked for the king so that he could tell the dream. And then later on, he could interpret Pharaoh's dream, and then he could uh, convince Pharaoh to save the the harvest uh, to store up food for a future time when there would be a famine. This was, this was very clear from the account that God ordained and orchestrated all of this so that Joseph would be there. But he did so because he intended for the nation of Israel to be preserved and to have a place to go. But in the meantime, Joseph was a blessing. Joseph's rule was a blessing to the people of Egypt. Um, and he was a wise man who had, uh, as Pharaoh even put it, a divine spirit. So he is discerning and wise, Genesis 41, verse 39. In fact, Pharaoh says to him, uh, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. So yes, Joseph was, uh, he was, he was serving in the government in a high up position in Egypt. Okay. Anything else from this era that you want to mention? Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, yeah, they serve, right, so they're serving underneath a, uh, you know, godless leader with, uh, with full devotion, as you're saying, yeah, and that, that's not just Joseph, is it? It's who, you were mentioning David when he was, when he was taking refuge in, with the Philistines, um, yep, and you can think of Daniel who did this, we'll talk about Nehemiah as well, uh, that does seem to be the thing, actually even, uh, I think, uh, Naaman as well, the Syrian. Um, so you have all of these people that w- they are believers, but when they are serving underneath a, a ruler, even as, a, as a, an official who's pretty high up, when they're serving underneath a king or someone like that who even doesn't fear the Lord, there is that devotion and there's personal concern very often, uh, and they're doing the job. Like they're, they're trying to absolutely do the best that they can. You can imagine some of the tensions that they would have felt in their heart between uh, when they would see their, their master doing these things that were evil. And how do, I, how do I do this? What do I say? In many cases, of course, you couldn't say anything, so you have to look and pick your spots, which is um, Nehemiah kind of unintentionally <laughs> ended up doing that when his concerns were exposed. But, uh, yeah, it's a great point that they did that with devotion, with a kind of gusto. They, they served as unto the Lord. Yeah. Good. Yeah, Stephen. 
Yeah, so God's chosen man, Abraham, right? He is praying for government. He's praying for, for the government leader that the loo, or the people that the wombs would be open. Yeah. Um, just an interesting note as well that Genesis 13, um, what happened when, when Pharaoh took uh, Sarah to be his wife, who was really Abraham's wife. Um, Genesis 12, 17, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Uh, a little bit of very intentional foreshadowing that would have been encouraging for the people of Israel to know when they were in Egypt in captivity. So God rescued them by striking uh, Abraham and Sarah by striking Egypt with plagues because of that. And of course, he would do that later on. Um, you can see here in some of these things too, these stories are noted in the Bible, um, not, not um, least of all because there are some supernatural things going on in these cases, striking with plagues, the Lord closing the wombs of these certain people. Uh, Joseph is being, he's, he's brought to power because of these visions that are received. So uh, we have to be careful that we don't even, that we don't look at this and, and forget that, that there are, uh, there are specific things that got these people into the positions that they were in, especially Joseph, and uh, that God intended to have a certain purpose for them in that. But nonetheless, while he was there, he did the job the way that he was supposed to, Joseph did. Okay, anything else just thinking about pre-Israel? Yeah, Stephen. He reproved Abimelech, yeah. Okay, what, what verse was that again? 25, good. Okay, Genesis 21, 25. Abraham complained to Abimelech or reproved Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. Yeah, uh, and that is far from the only instance, as we'll talk about a little bit later, far from the only time that someone who is serving the Lord uh, spoke against and spoke to and let a complaint be known to someone who uh, was a government official at whatever level so this is not the only time if he's doing that there okay good yep um hannah mentioned earlier the hebrew midwives what did they do well they were serving um and they were told to do a certain thing by pharaoh what were they told to do they were told to kill all the males who came out and what did they do instead they came up with an excuse not to do that and they, the reason they did so, Exodus tells us, is because they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. They were making sure that they did not do that. Um, Exodus 1.17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. They were being instructed to murder these newborns. But instead, they feared, the, they feared God and they disobeyed the king if that's what it came down to. So here you have a very good example of them saying, we are going to obey God rather than men when the two things come into conflict. Okay, good. Anything else before Israel? And of course, they are part of the nation, but anything else before we kind of move into the uh, Israel with a constitution stage? No? Okay. Uh, well, just briefly then, Israel as a nation, Israel is a difficult case because uh, there's basically, when, when you come to that, what was the standard of what the government should do and be in Israel? What was the standard? Their standard was the law of Moses. They had an agreed upon standard. And even though they didn't always follow it, there was no question 
with them that, yeah, this is supposed to be the authority. And sometimes the leaders would ignore it, and sometimes they might forget it. But at the end of the day, um, it was the national understanding that this is what we're supposed to do. So the king was held to a certain type of more defined, more clear, uh, and more accountable standard. Can you, um, well, in, for Israel as a nation that, of course, had various types of leaders, um, God gave them the leaders like Moses and Joshua. Then he gave them, uh, they were ruled largely by elders, by priests, Levites, and then by um, sort of one-off judges as needed to rescue them and to be military leaders. And then finally, uh, they were ruled by a monarchy, by kings. Um, how did people in Israel handle when the rulers above them did not do what was right? Can you think about anything there? What do they do when the rulers were not acting according to God's standard, according to God's law? Patrick. Yeah, they did go all along with it a lot. Yeah, that's right. Um, in fact, there is part of the reason why they would go along with it is because they are the ones who caused it to happen in the first place. Uh, there is a statement at the end of 1 Samuel 12 where Samuel tells the people, uh, verse 24 and 25, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So he kind of puts it in, in their court. If you follow after the Lord, then you will have a king that is, uh, that is godly. Um, in fact, he says this even more specifically in verse 14, which is, uh, I think, the verse that I was thinking of. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So basically, yeah, as long as... Um, as long as you, the people, are serving the Lord, then your king is going to follow the Lord. So what does that tell you about what the people were like when Israel's kings turned away their hearts from the Lord? It means that they weren't there either. Yeah, so, okay, sometimes they went along with the king and, or even influenced the king. What else? How do they respond when the king was not doing as he should? Yeah, Marvin. They, yeah, they were willing to follow. They, yeah, give us a king. You don't say give us a king unless to some degree you want a leader. Now, they might not ultimately like what he ended up doing, and Samuel warned them about that. But yeah, they, they were, there was a willingness to follow on some level, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what about when, when Saul sinned against the Lord? Uh, who responded to that? First of all, you have uh, Samuel, who was the prophet and the priest and Samuel rebuked Saul very directly and brought uh, brought the message from the Lord to him and told him what God had said so um, 
for example, in 1523 of 1 Samuel, rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So uh, he then says in verse 28 of that chapter, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So Samuel uh, rebuked Saul and he brought this message from the Lord to him and said, this is what is going to happen to you. Now in that case, he is God's messenger very directly. He's speaking prophetically. He has a specific message that has been given for Saul from God in his circumstances. But nonetheless, he did. He challenged him and he confronted him and he told him what God had said. Uh, what about when Saul acted foolishly in the battle? His son Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, if you're familiar with that story, was not afraid to say things would have gone differently if my father had made a wiser, a wiser decision. So he did acknowledge that as well. Um, Jonathan was willing to, to um, throw his lot in with David over against his own father. And Saul knew this and wasn't really happy about it. He tried to pin Jonathan to the wall with a spear for this, but he was willing to do this and he was willing to help David because he knew that David was the one who was following and serving the Lord and Saul was not, even though he was his own father. Uh, what about when David sinned? What happened? Yeah, Nathan the prophet came and confronted him directly. Uh, you think he was a little nervous to do that? I don't know. I don't know whether he would have been or not. Uh, would you have been nervous or anxious to do that and to speak to the king? Well, I mean, there were later kings in Israel who would speak against the, or there were later prophets who would speak against the king, such as Jeremiah, who were not treated so well as Nathan was in response and were thrown into pits and were even killed for the things that they would say to the king, even if it was God's message to them, if you, even if they were just literally prophesying and taking what God had actually said directly and telling it to these people. So yeah, Nathan did this. He spoke directly to him and he confronted him for what he had done wrong. Uh, we've, I think we mentioned previously, but King Uzziah became great with God's help. And then in 2 Chronicles 26, he got a little arrogant and he went in and he tried to offer uh, sacrifices and incense himself in, the, in the, uh, the temple. And the priests confronted him and they said, you can't do this. This is against God's law. So there were some things that people did when the rulers above them didn't do what was right. We have an example of this. And even though the standard was a little bit more um, uh, agreed upon by everyone, uh, we can at least take away the principle from this that it is appropriate to go and to, if, you, if someone is doing something wrong, no matter the level of authority that they have, and no matter the potential consequences to you, it is right and it is good to tell them and to show them what actually God insists upon for them and what they should be doing instead. Uh, so we got to be careful about, of course, uh, transporting what went on in Israel over one-to-one. -one. Uh, there's a difficult case because there was more of an agreed-upon standard in the scriptures. Uh, but nonetheless, we can learn from them just by way of example, especially about when people were not doing what they should, that, that uh, people were willing to show them. This is what God says over against what you are doing. Okay, other thoughts on Israel as a nation as we think about how, uh, how they responded, how believers in that time responded when someone was doing something wrong in the government.
Yeah, yeah, there were even Israel, which was largely unbelieving. There were still, there were always people, right? Yeah, always people. And uh, we even read about that all the way up through, um, even after Christ came and they rejected him. Paul says that God has preserved a remnant even during this present time, just as he did during Isaiah's time, or uh, Elijah's time and so on. Yeah, yeah. Good, so these faithful people, even within, uh, within that nation. Yeah, okay. Good, anything else on that? Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, the only people, prophets or someone like that. Yeah, uh, I, I, think that's, I think that's right. Um, and why do you think that is? You or anyone else? If you agree with that, why, why is that? Marley. Okay, we're all sheep, yeah. Yeah, we, we do tend to just go along with, yep, yep. And there are a lot of reasons for that, aren't there? That we don't think about it, or they're the leader. We're just going to do what they what they say, and maybe we're afraid. Yeah. Yeah, see, and I think that that's, I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that, and I can't speak to the, the Lord of the Rings uh, portion of that. Um, I, won't, I won't display all my ignorance of, uh, of all that's, that goes on in that story. But uh, I will say that access is a very, uh, on a practical level, it's a, it's a huge point. That there were, frankly, there were just a limited few people who could even say anything to the king. And this is why largely these are the only people that you hear about saying anything to them in the first place. Now, we'll talk, um, there are some more general messages that are spoken in the prophets um, toward nations and sometimes toward their kings. But this, this does bring up the point that largely when you find Christians or when you find believers pre-Christ's uh, arrival who are speaking to these matters, um, largely they're speaking to people. They're speaking to the government. They're speaking to the officials themselves. And they're doing so, and it's recorded. They're able to do so because they have access to those people. So today, there's a whole lot of speaking, speaking out, uh, speaking about things. And the Bible doesn't forbid that. But I think we need to recognize a different category that most of these occasions are people speaking toward the person who is doing it and directly challenging them or confronting them, even if they did write it down so that other people could actually see what, has, what was said. So, yeah, the access is a, is a big deal, and it influences the way that they did these things. Um, and I think that, that we should consider that in our own efforts toward, um, toward speaking about these matters as well. Uh, do we actually have the ability to 
talk to the person who is doing the thing that we want to change, or are we going to have to try to do that indirectly, and is that the best way or even the appropriate way to do it? Yeah, Esther, so, and, and we should get there because we're going to talk about the, uh, how people, and Jews in particular, uh, acted toward the Gentiles, toward Gentile governments. So Esther would be one. Uh, how did, what, what is the story of Esther? Well, Esther was uh, selected basically in a beauty pageant for the king who didn't like his old wife and got rid of her in a very harsh way. And then she became, she became the queen. Um, there is some possibility that, uh, you know, this is not necessarily the best way to go about becoming the queen and that she, I don't know if she had to compromise to do that or at least was, um, was made to parade herself in shameful ways in order to, um, to get into that position. But regardless, she was there. And what did Esther do for her people? Well, she persuaded the king and she was able to deliver her people from destruction. Um, she had some wisdom coming from her uncle on this, but she was able to do this. And God put her in that particular spot to preserve her, or to preserve her people through her. So, yeah, it's an amazing story. Um, yeah, well, who else? Who were the people, and how did they relate to Gentile governments, especially when they were uh, in captivity? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, Daniel had that. So Daniel's a great example because he did serve, I mean, a very uh, high role within the Babylonian and then the, the Persian government. Uh, and he, like, like Joseph, was bestowed with great wisdom. And so he quitted himself well when he was in that role. And he, uh, his, his godliness and his integrity would have been part of that being able to act with wisdom. Uh, you, you're going to have a hard time acting wisely according to God-given wisdom if you're not willing to act in a righteous way. So Daniel is a great example because he was faithful to the Lord. He didn't compromise. Uh, he had to take a stand on multiple occasions against government edicts, but he did so in ways that are instructive for us. Uh, he was unafraid to stand up to uh, unbiblical commands. He was wise in sorting through what was a biblical command and what was not. And he cared deeply for the king who was over him. He didn't want the bad thing that was prophesied to come about toward him in Daniel chapter 4. So he wished goodwill for him. Um, and at the same time, he spoke boldly against the king and the king's sins when the time came for him to do that. So he's a great all-around example of the kind of uh, interaction that could take place by someone who is in a position like that. Daniel risked his neck on a number of occasions in that role, and yet while that was, you know, alongside those moments of intensity, he also served faithfully for a long time, and it was so faithfully that the... Uh, the um, the other satraps and rulers in Daniel 6 said, we can't find any charge against him except on the matter of his God. So he had integrity. He did the job the way that it was supposed to be done. 
So yeah, Daniel's a great example. Yeah, good. Others. Yeah, Jeremiah was doing exactly that, right? So they came, so they were conquered, and uh, he said, don't, uh, don't try to, like, this is what God specifically has for you at this specific time. And he said, yeah, don't try to rebel against that. This is God's provision for you. Just follow them in these ways. So, yeah, he was exhorting the people um, in that particular historical circumstance to do exactly that. Yeah, yeah, good. What about uh, Nehemiah? Nehemiah, what did Nehemiah do? Right. Yeah. And, and so Nehemiah, you know, he was afraid. He was worried when no, he can't see me upset. You know, that would upset the king. Uh, and this which points out as well the element of fear that is not just something that is due. I mean, we I think we have a little bit of a harder time um, honoring and respecting government in some ways in our day because there's not that. Well, if I have the slightest misstep, then they really will actually just put me to death and find somebody new. Um, so Nehemiah would have been worried on that kind of a level, but he did. He, he served in a foreign royal court, and he um, appealed to the king on behalf of his nation and his people. He used his position, I suppose, in that moment to ask, can, uh, can I go and see about rebuilding all of this stuff that has happened as you said there's no you know human reason why that necessarily would have taken place but god granted favor to him yeah so daniel in babylon nehemiah uh esther was used by god as well um there are a number of prophetic messages toward gentile nations um you have a whole string of these in Isaiah 14 through 23. Um, Jeremiah as well speaks to the nations. Um, Ezekiel has, his, uh, has prophecies toward and against many others, but especially against Tyre in uh, chapter 26 through 28, if you want to read about that. And then you have uh, others such as the book of Obadiah, which, spoke, which uh, basically says uh, Edom, Esau, uh, Israel is going to be victorious over you one day because of how you joined in and doing evil against them. You have uh, prophecies by Jonah that Nineveh was going to be overthrown and then Nahum actually saying, no, but for real, it actually is now and you're not going to repent or have the chance to do that uh, for a serious sin or Nineveh's sin. So a lot of the focus of these prophetic warnings is about how they have treated God's people warning them against how they've treated God's people and that they can't do that. You as a nation have exalted yourself over the nation of Israel and you have mistreated them, which of course aligns with what, um, what God promised all the way back in Genesis 12, that those who bless Abraham and his descendants, God will bless them. Those who curse them, God will curse them. Um, I should note in light of, you know, ongoing uh, even modern issues going on with the nation of Israel that blessing God's 
people and blessing even the, the physical descendants of Abraham does not mean automatically and unquestioningly sanctioning every single thing that they do or giving unqualified support to them in every action that they might take. But there is a general disposition that uh, you are not going against them, you are going toward them. Uh, for people in our time, recognizing that most of them have rejected Christ and that they are in the state that, for example, Paul describes them in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We should desire their salvation and recognize at the same time that they have been uh, hardened toward the gospel for this present time. Uh, so there was a lot of prophesying toward the Gentile nations uh, just about what is going to happen. Nations should read that and should understand and uh, today, any nation that is not following the Lord should recognize these kinds of things. Where there is godlessness, um, they, they should recognize that whether during this uh, era, if you will, during this age, or at the final judgment, that people will be judged for not following after the Lord. And then in many cases, the nations, uh, they will be overthrown, just as the nations, the, the, the Canaanites were, and other people throughout history, even the succession of empires that God warned against uh, uh, their sin and that he promised would come from Babylon on down. Nations are overthrown very often because of their rebellion against what is right, according to the standards that we talked about in uh, previous weeks about what government should do and really about what people should be like in their personal conduct. Um, put a pin in that as well for when we talk about what might motivate us to want to see our nation changed. Um, Regardless of how we might choose to go about that or what degree of effort we might put into that, when, when people talk about wanting the United States, for example, to be a nation that follows after the Lord, uh, that is at least one component that might motivate that, which is understanding that God does deal with rebellious nations and sinful nations in certain ways throughout history and that there are a lot of warnings about that. So I'll just kind of put a pin down there for when we come back to discuss that later. Now there is one interesting uh, account in Daniel chapter 11. I just want you to see this. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 is a prophecy of what would take place throughout uh, the time from uh, looking forward from where Daniel was uh, all the way through really the end um, and beyond our own time. But he goes back and forth throughout Daniel 11 and, and talks about a lot of conflicts between the, the nations, the Gentile rulers that would kind of just put Israel in the crossfire uh, as they fought back and forth from north to south. But there was going to come a time where there would be people among the nation of Israel who would rise up against people who were oppressing them as foreign conquerors. So Daniel eleven thirty two. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they'll be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, I think that this is referring to, and you can go back and listen if you want through when we went through this in uh, the book of Daniel and sermon series there, uh, but the revolt in the second century, the Maccabean revolt, where uh, Israel actually stood up to the people who were oppressing them, these foreign conquerors, and they eventually had some degree of success. And what's interesting here is that he actually says these are people who know their God and they will display strength and take action. It, it puts that in a positive light. 
we want to be careful with this and trying to extrapolate too much from this as far as like overthrowing oppressors and so on. Uh, this is not the same thing as maybe overthrowing a duly elected government or overthrowing a king, uh, even if it's a, a monarch who comes from your own people or something like that. That may be a little bit different story here, but there were people who were oppressed by foreign conquerors. This was rightly the nation of Israel's territory and their land, and yet there were people who were taking that over from them. And so there is here an apparent commendation of people who say, no, we're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to take action. We're going to do something about this. All of which is to say that if you get conquered somehow in your nation, that it is not the same thing as submitting to the government to just go along with that. That's not one-to-one. That's not the exact same thing. So this does show that there is a place for um, relating to people who try to conquer you and try to fight against you by actually fighting back as a nation. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And this passage, among others, shows us that. But even when they've kind of been established for some time, it's still not the same thing. Or it's still, it's still not uh, necessarily wrong to do that. So... Um, We'd have to consider a lot of wisdom about how to actually apply that going forward, but uh, I just want to make sure that you do understand that that's there and that uh, not, submission is not the only thing and prophetic words are not the only thing that are, that are uh, shown to us in Scripture about how to respond in those cases. Okay, so let's talk then about the New Testament era, and I just want to give you um, four main um, people or uh, eras, if you will. First of all, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, what do we know about his interactions with the government? Okay, Pharisees, yeah, you brood of vipers. Yep, hypocrites. They were false teachers leading the nation astray. And those are the kinds of people that, that always got the most severe rebukes from um, from God's messengers. Yeah, what else? Yeah, said, Herod, you can't do that. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You can't, you can't do that. It's wrong. So he said, it's not lawful. This is against what is uh, the moral standard and um, the legal standard, too. He said, you can't do this. Uh, what do you think John's goal was, by the way, for Herod? Surface level uh, change? Oh, no, I just... I'll just put her away, but continue with my heart the same way. No, John wanted people to repent. He wanted everybody to repent. But he did speak directly and say, you are sinning in this particular way. So he did this even to the one who was the ruler uh, over that territory. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He did. He told him, do your job righteously. Don't sin. Don't violate. Uh, don't violate. God's law in this. You need to do what's right. Yeah, tax collectors and soldiers. Good. Okay, what about Jesus? How did he interact with government when they weren't doing what they were supposed to? Mm -hmm. So, and uh, maybe you're thinking of Pilate, perhaps? Yep. So, uh, in John 19, uh, 
he says, uh, you know, don't you know, I have, Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to put you to death or to set you free? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you from God. So he, yes, he went along, he submitted to the authority of Pilate, but he also said, you need to recognize your place before God and implied you should, uh, you should humble yourself before him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, there is a passage, and I'm, I'm losing the reference here, but when it, it has to do with making the, uh, um, actually, yeah, so it's uh, Matthew 17. And when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, from strangers. Jesus said to them, then the sons are exempt. Basically saying they're doing something wrong to make you pay this. He says, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook. And take the first fish that comes up, and when you open his mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. What is Jesus saying there? That's a really intriguing passage because he is not saying that you always just go along with everything the government ever says to do, no matter what they tell you to do. But what he's saying is it is wrong for them to do this. This is not the way that they're supposed to be acting. But because I have higher priorities than just getting what my due is, I'm going to go ahead and make a way that I do this, what they're asking me, so that I don't offend them. In other words, this is not the place where I want to have the battle. I'm picking my spot here. And Jesus could have come out at that point and said, um, guys, you, you can't do this. This is not the way taxes even work. Why are you doing this? He could have said that, but he didn't because he knew that that could have the effect of giving offense to the people that he is trying to preach the gospel to. Now, we can perhaps go overboard with this and think about every possible thing that someone might be offended by to the point where you literally never do anything and you just sit in your house and never do any potentially offensive action. But here in this case, he is at least saying, look, there, there are more important things than whether or not I hold the government to every single thing that they are supposed to do according to what God says is the right standard. So he, he does, uh, he shows here the priorities and, and what's most important to him. Um, so Pilate, um, uh, John the Baptist confronted Herod. What about Peter and John after the resurrection? What did the government officials tell them to do? Stop preaching. What did they say? Come <laughs> Uh, no thanks, we're going to keep doing that anyway. We're going to continue to preach because we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 29. Uh, the subject of obedience was preaching the gospel. They were told by Jesus to do that. And they were told by the leaders not to do that. And they said, we are going to do what God says instead. Um, so you have Peter and John's example there of where when they interacted, they were trying, they said that we are going to do what God says. We are not going to submit to you. And they told them that directly to their face that in this case, we're not going to do that. And they also were trying to proclaim to these same people the resurrection of Christ all along the way. Which leads us then to think about the apostle Paul as well. And Paul was someone who had great political privileges compared to many others because he was not only a Jewish citizen but he was born a Roman citizen and he on several occasions took advantage of this citizenship 
Um, he did so in Acts 16 when he was thrown into prison without trial and beaten. And he was tried, they tried to kind of quietly send him out of town. And what did he do? He says, uh, no, you've beaten us without trial, men who are Romans. And he kind of puts a fear into the people there in the city before he leaves, the leaders, um, which functions, maybe among other things, to uh, protect the church a little bit when he leaves and have kind of a one-up on them so that it's like, oh, no, no, we, uh, sorry, Paul, what can we do? They were very concerned about that. So he, uh, he, he used his citizenship for that. Um, he was able to use it when he was about to be scourged in Acts 22. And then he used it to appeal to Caesar when he was not receiving a fair trial. Now, what was the goal of this? Well, for one thing, he knew that that was the only way that he could ever get out of jail. But also, what did Paul get when he appealed to Caesar? He got a trip to Rome. And he got an audience to preach the gospel before Caesar. So this is what he was after. This is what he wanted for years. And he was able to get it, not necessarily in the way that he wanted, but he got it anyway. Um, as you read through... As you read through Paul's interaction with, uh, with government leaders, it is very interesting because he's making his legal defense for his own protection, his own vindication. And there is a concern on Luke's part to report over and over again that the Christians in the book of Acts, in the early church, were not troublemakers. They were not the rebels. They were not the ones causing all the problems. In fact, if anyone was causing problems, it was the people responding to Christians. So in Acts 19, you have the Ephesian people who stir up a riot. And they go into the Colosseum and they're chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. And you have things like that where Luke is just reporting and reporting and saying, No, no, these people are not out of order. It's the Christians who are in order. We're submitting. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But it's the unbelievers attacking us. They're the ones who are not actually following the law. Uh, so that's one thing that's going on in Acts is Paul is very careful to do this. But uh, also when he got before the leaders such as Festus, Agrippa, Felix, and then ultimately Caesar, he constantly is calling them to repentance. And he's saying, you know what God is like or you need to know what God is like he's speaking to them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and he's speaking to them about the gospel and he's telling them I want you to believe this message so that was what he used those opportunities for and it isn't to say that he wasn't also trying to get free because he was but he was doing both of those things at the same time and he saw those as gospel opportunities so uh, all along the way this this governmental interaction has to do not just with a personal um, you know, self-interest or with at all telling the people there, telling these leaders of what they needed to do and be, uh, just for the sake of changing government or their own personal conduct just for that. But it was always gospel-driven. So these are just a few of the things. I know there's more here and we could, we could talk about this more um, if you have questions. But these are the kinds of things that were going on in the Bible when when uh, believers were relating to people who are not Christians. Uh, so let me just kind of summarize a couple of things, and then uh, we can be done. So as we, think about, um, as we think about the way that Christians interacted 
with the government. Um, sometimes Christians served in Gentile governments in various capacities. Um, other times people became believers while they were serving in government and they continued to serve in the government. So you have people like, uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar who seemed to repent and to believe. Uh, and he continued to serve as king for some time. Um, there is an example of speaking prophetically on the basis of divine revelation toward government officials when they're not following God's universal standards for conduct or in the way that they're governing. So it is appropriate to do that, to talk to them, to tell them, uh, hey, you're not doing what you should. And this is especially the case if you have their ear. Um, another thing, just to summarize, is that Believers recognized the wrongdoings and injustices of government officials, but New Testament believers and preachers spoke to government officials largely toward the end of their repentance and their faith in Christ, and not with any particular view toward changing the government or having them govern differently other than what might flow from them being a Christian now and then actually serving the Lord. And then um, I would just note one more thing, that there is... Okay, on the one hand, there is no commandment in the New Testament that believers should not be involved in politics, government, speaking about these matters publicly. But when you look through the way that they actually practiced in the New Testament and the long silence or the large silence about matters like these, uh, the absence of any efforts to do anything to change the government other than speaking directly to people who were in it about their own character, uh, on the part of the apostles and church leaders, uh, this is a very important data point that we shouldn't neglect when we're thinking about our own practices in the modern day. So this does not tell us, the Bible does not tell us, stay out of this, don't have anything to do with this. Uh, but the priorities and the lack of speaking about certain things that maybe some would promote today uh, should be something that we should keep as a major point in considering how we ourselves ought to follow the example of what was laid down there. Um, I want to talk more about what the Bible actually tells us to do, and we'll talk about this next week from a theological perspective. Uh, what is required, what is permitted, and what are some of the theological viewpoints and systems that might drive the way that we decide to do that. Uh, but for now, hopefully that's helpful just to get in our head, what did people do in the Bible in situations like these? So I've run over. I'm sorry about that. Let me uh, pray for us, and we will be done for this morning. God, thank you for this time today. Thank you for uh, those who have stood in the past and been faithful to you in roles such as these, even at great risk of their own lives or even the cost of their lives. We pray that we might be so faithful in our own roles, and we pray that where we have opportunity to care for the people that you have put over us in ways like this, that we would be faithful to do so. We pray that you would save many who are in our government over us and we pray that you would put people in their lives who would be able to preach christ to them and that they would listen and that they would learn and believe and we pray these things